Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, reported child abuse cases are on the rise in Minnesota. A new Prince exhibit commemorates the year anniversary of the Minnesota music icon's death, and we preview the annual Gopher spring football game. But first, the Minnesota legislature has been on their Passover and Easter break this past week, but they'll be back at the state capitol bright and early next Tuesday morning as they go into the final stretch to try to finish the state budget and all the rest of their business by the third week in May. MNN's Bill Werner talked with Hamlin University political analyst David Schultz about how things might play out. Here we are at about the... I don't know, I guess it's about the two-thirds point through the legislative session, Professor. And all of the sides have staked their positions out pretty firmly, at least at this point. Uh, you know, we, we know where the Republicans are on their budget bills, uh, on the taxes, on the transportation, on the spending issues, and likewise, we know where Governor Mark Dayton and the Democrats are on that. Uh, there are some uh, in the administration who are even saying publicly, uh, Myron Franz, the uh, state management and budget commissioner, said uh, last week he's concerned we may not get there on time, meaning finish the legislative session by the deadline the third week of May, have, have to go into extra innings. What do you think? I think it's a real possibility, and I say that because even though the Republicans are moving lots of legislation through, you know, they're assembling those big 10 or so omnibus bills that form the state budget. There's two problems there. First, there's a big gap between what Dayton wants in terms of numbers and funding for for programs and what the Republicans are are budgeting. So they have a fiscal or sort of a, a spending difference. And two, embedded in many of those omnibus bills are public policies um, that the governor also doesn't like. And so it is setting us up for a situation to where the governor could potentially veto one, if not more, of those big omnibus bills um, and then and then put us to the point where we're, we're back to square one, where we still have to negotiate out the actual terms and conditions of what those bills are going to look like. And right now there seems to be um, no effort in terms of going through that negotiation part to actually work out the details and then go back and legislate. You know, Professor, it's really interesting because the legislative leaders and Governor Dayton also made a real effort to get all this stuff done much earlier than usual. Um, omnibus budget bills being passed uh, all before the uh, the Passover and Easter break. Now, I'll grant you that that, that those holidays fall in different times, different different years, rather. Uh, but but uh, having it done all this early is unusual, uh, if if not unprecedented. But yet, how much is it really going to help? Do you think? I don't think it helps much at all. I think you're absolutely yeah. correct. It's usually you don't see the point in terms of these omnibus bills passing. It's still, if I can use sort of the analogy, when they get to about the 80 to 85 percent mark in terms of the legislature, they're right. pretty far along. They've got those bills, maybe almost the 90 percent time. We're looking at usually in May when they seem to reach agreement on those. And usually when they reach agreement on them at that point, it's because they've actually reached agreement on them, that they have the broad <laughs> contours right. worked out between right. the two chambers and the governor's office. But here they don't have that. Well, Professor, let's go beyond. Let's let's maybe go on the assumption, and who knows whether it would be right or wrong. But it's kind of tending that way that that first round gets vetoed uh, for the most part, and then and then it's put Humpty Dumpty back together again. So so then we still have these kind of these major issues. We have uh, K twelve education, which I think 
you know, it sounds like there's a path to some sort of a some sort of an agreement on that. Uh, mm-hmm. th- there, there is the, the health and human services area, which which is a big problem area. There, there are mm-hmm. there's transportation, which is kind of allied to this whole thing, and and then mm-hmm. of course other elements of the state budget. Um, what do you think? Where do you think all that ends up? Is there any common ground that they can find on those areas? Well, you would hope there would be, but yeah. but again, I think the complexity here. It's not just numbers. If the thing was a question of numbers, then you could split the differences on some things, um, and, and, and everybody can sort of feel like they got something. But I think the bigger problem is, is not just numbers um, and how, how much money to spend, but again, embedded in those omnibus bills are policy decisions. For example, in transportation, the Republicans don't want money going towards light rail. They don't actually, at, at, at least at least at last Generation, they don't want money going to very much in terms of mass transportation whatsoever. Right. I mean, that's a huge at odds in terms of where they are with the with with, with the Democrats and, and the governor. And I, I was going to say, and I was going to throw in here that the fact that you know we you know we also shouldn't forget the fact that you know this is a governor who's not running for re-election, he's looking for legacy, and so he's not likely to back down too much on on what he wants. Also, and so. So we're, we're looking at a pretty firmly resolved governor um, who doesn't have to face the voters um, in 18 months. And does that then uh, bode for, does that increase the chances of the legislature not getting done on time and going into extra innings, special session, and having help us? I think so. I yeah. think so. Yeah, because at this point, it's setting it up where the governor has one last chance to make his imprint on the budget and set a legacy. Um, and I think... He has nothing to lose if it goes into special session and actually nothing to lose in terms of perhaps even if it goes past July 1st into shutdown because um, the Democrats are in control in the legislature and he and the Democrats will blame this all on the Republicans um, and make that a big issue in the 2018 elections. That's Hamlin University Professor David Schultz. So, Scott, here we go. The big push to the finish, but we don't know for certain when the end will be. And, of course, we'll have all the latest information as those last days of the session play out. Thank you for that report, Bill. More Minnesota Matters after this. Son, uh, can you hand me that big screwdriver? This one, Dad? Uh, No, that's a wrench. Uh, I need the long one close to your foot. Why? Uh, Because I need to loosen a screw. Why? Because I have to change the oil filter. Why? Because I love you! (laughs) The smallest moments can have the biggest impact on a child's life. All right. Now pass me the new filter. Why? (laughs) (laughs) Very funny. (laughs) Take time to be a dad today. For more information, Dial 1-877-432-3411 or visit us at www.fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council.
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. The number of children suspected of being abused or neglected was up significantly in Minnesota last year. I recently spoke with Assistant Commissioner in the Department of Human Services, Jim Koppel, about why that is and what we can all do to try to bring that number down. We know in in 2016, we had 39,500 children that were accepted maltreatment reports. Um, That is a 25% increase from 2015. Uh, Just as a side note, 2015 had a significant increase from 2014, so we have seen a fairly large spike in um, both the reports and also the accepted maltreatment reports where uh, there was a follow-up investigation or uh, action taken. So the, you know, additionally, we had 8,000 a little over 8,000 children that were abused or neglected by a family member or a caregiver. But the majority of the cases are children who are neglected. And that can be uh, either as a result of, uh, you know, poverty issue. It could be um, being left at home alone. Uh, it could be a child care issue, et cetera. So those are some of the, some of the data from uh, the report. What do you attribute this increase to? Well, I think in the the um, the case in, in 2014 uh, came to light on Eric Dean, uh, a young uh, boy who was killed in Pope County, and the aftermath of that was there was a full investigation. There was a charge against the stepmother who was uh, now in jail, and also a examination of how we the the county responded to that case and the numerous reports of abuse prior to his death. So the governor set up a task force. That task force came up with over 90 recommendations the latter part of 2014 and into 2015. The legislature funded uh, $25 million a year uh, which was the first time in over a decade that there had been any new money in our child protection system. And there's been a, uh, a fairly detailed coverage by the media on a consistent basis. And I think all of that has led the public to be more aware of these issues and subsequently has led to a lot more calls, a lot more reports. And then I would add one additional component not necessarily the largest driver. I think the largest driver is the just the uh, media exposure, but the opioid uh, epidemic and the number of babies being born addicted, being removed for drug abuse uh, reasons. You know that's that's certainly been another heightened problem in Minnesota and, and across the country. So, Jim, the fact that awareness is up and cases being reported have increased can, could be seen as a positive sign in terms of shedding light on what's happening to these children. But on the other hand, what do we do about prevention? Because that's got to be a key, too, to try to get some of these numbers down. Absolutely. You know, I, w- I would say this, that in general, when families succeed, when we assure family success, we assure child well-being and a healthier development and you know a positive outcome. When families fail, that's when it, systems like child protection are called on to either help that family 
regain its strength and stability or remove the children and move them toward a another secure pathway, permanency, maybe through adoption, et cetera. And that latter part, what I'm talking about is when we, when we wait for families to fail, we don't do well. We certainly have positive cases where we intervene, serve the needs of a family, get them back on track, and they go on. But when we look at our statistics, the low graduation rates of children in foster care, the biggest driver of homeless youth are children aging out of foster care. Those are things that tell us this system is not the right system for the best outcome. The best outcome and the right system for that best outcome is keeping families healthy and whole and preventing the slow slide toward the high-stress environment that will cause ultimately something to break inside, you know, a temper to flare, a continued poverty environment where you're not able to provide for the child, drug use and abuse, alcohol use and abuse that, again, just slowly deteriorates a situation. If we can begin to recognize those and intervene in a front, more front-end way, a more preventive way, we're going to have a much better outcome for that family and child but we're also going to spend a lot less money on the deep end, which is our child protection system. So that's, you know, that's an easy answer. Easy thing for me to say to you, it's hard to do. We need to, as a community and as a state uh, and in every community, look around us at our, our friends, our neighbors, our relatives, and really look for signs of stress. Uh, look for, you know, those opportunities where we can either have conversations, uh, offer to babysit, offer to take the children for a day, offer to help in other ways where we can alleviate some of that stress and we can do it through our own direct actions. But also as a state, we need to look and say, what is it that we need to invest in uh, that are going to give kids and families the supports that they need to be successful. Thank you again to my guest, Department of Human Services Assistant Commissioner Jim Koppel. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Sometimes a simple idea can be developed into something big that can change the world. This is Katy Perry. In fourth grade, my music teacher helped me make a vision board. It was a collage that represented all of my hopes and aspirations in music. But what if my teacher didn't have the supplies we needed to make our collages? What if I never got the chance to learn and express my dreams? Unfortunately, that's the reality our teachers face every day. They're forced to spend their own money, sometimes just to keep the classroom running. That's why I'm teaming up again with Staples for Students to donate $1 million to DonorsChoose.org, a charity that helps teachers get what they need to bring learning to life for students. DonorsChoose.org has helped fulfill more than 700,000 classroom projects, benefiting more than 18 million students. It's an idea that's changing the world. It's easy to help. Donate in Staples stores or learn more at StaplesForStudents.org. You wanted to see me? Yes, please, have a seat. So here's the thing. When this company brought you on, we took a chance on you. You didn't have that four-year college degree we typically look for. Right. But we gave you a shot anyway. And since then, you've worked incredibly hard and given it your all. Thanks. You've been an important asset to the team, but 
I don't think you can be an intern here anymore. We want to hire you. You're, you're serious? Absolutely. Find your next great employee. Introduce yourself to the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. I won't let you down. I know. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The Minnesota Historical Society is joining fans across the globe to mark the first anniversary of the passing of Prince. MNN's Tasha Radel has more. That's right, Scott. Next Friday, April 21st, already marks the one-year anniversary of the death of Minnesota music icon Prince. To celebrate our hometown legend, the Minnesota Historical Society will be opening a new exhibit coming up Tuesday, April 18th. Joining me now is Adam Scher, Senior Curator at the Minnesota Historical Society. All right, Adam. Well, thanks for joining me today. Wanted to visit with you a little bit. Uh, I know uh, the first anniversary of Prince's death is right around the corner. And you folks there at the Minnesota Historical Society are going to be uh, marking that anniversary. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing? Well, we felt it was important to to mark uh, the passing of Prince because he was such an important figure in Minnesota history, not just as a, as a musician, but also as an entrepreneur, as a humanitarian. And um, we did uh, a display when the day he passed away, uh, we brought out uh, the costume that he wore in the film Purple Rain, which is arguably one of our most significant artifacts, certainly related to Minnesota music history and one that's recognizable to so many people. So we thought it would be fitting to have that uh, costume on display again um, to mark the one-year anniversary of his passing. We'll also have uh, some other items on display. We, we acquired uh, another very significant item related to prints uh, uh, late last year in November at auction. We purchased a, a one-page handwritten set of lyrics that he wrote to mark uh, his contract uh, with Warner Brothers in 1977. He uh, had plans to go out to Los Angeles uh, to have lunch with uh, Warner Brothers executives and to meet with them. And Prince, being the shy person that he was, uh, was feeling a little apprehensive about, uh, about it. And uh, so what he did is he, he wrote a song, uh, which uh, he recorded here in Minneapolis. It was never uh, published. Uh, the song was was never distributed, uh, but there are there are private copies of uh, of the recording. Uh, but um, his uh, his lyrics came up for auction in November of 2016 uh, in Los Angeles, and uh, we knew right away this was something significant uh, that the historical society had to to try to acquire. And uh, we were very fortunate uh, that we were able to, to do so. And so uh, this will probably be the first public showing of those lyrics uh, since we acquired them. And I think I had read that the song uh, was called I Hope We Work It Out. And do you believe that was kind of him reflecting his thoughts uh, before heading into that music meeting? Yes, that is that is the title of the song. And it, and it really does say quite a bit about uh, 
his apprehension, his concern about uh, his first major record contract and, and how um, his work as an artist would be treated. And, uh, of course, uh, we know now that uh, years later uh, he had uh, a rather rocky, acrimonious uh, relationship with Warner Brothers, um, which eventually did work out. Uh, only uh, in the very recent past was he able to actually acquire all the publishing rights to his songs from Warner Brothers, but uh, that took a considerable amount of time and effort to do. So it's rather ironic that uh, he titled that song this way uh, for his his very first foray into uh, a record contract with a major label. And you know, Adam, I wanted to visit with you a little bit. You, you folks, like you said, put up a display uh, immediately after uh, Prince's death, and uh, it, I'm assuming it was really well received uh, across the state. Did it? Does it surprise you um, how many uh, people are so connected to Prince here in Minnesota? Uh, it wasn't surprising at all. Uh, we saw the reaction, as did not only people in Minnesota but around the world, uh, of how people felt about his passing, um, particularly uh, the expressions that were left at Paisley Park, that were left. Uh, intangible form at First Avenue, uh, some of which uh, we did acquire as well and um, will be on display. Uh, so it wasn't really surprising to us, um, but it, it was just uh, so amazing to see the heartfelt expressions that the public had uh, for him. We, we left uh, post-it notes uh, next to the Purple Rain display that we had here at the History Center for people to be able to express their feelings. And by the time we took the display down uh, in just a matter of uh, a week or two, uh, the wall adjacent to the display case was absolutely covered with post-it notes with expressions, uh, some of which we saved for posterity. So it was just amazing, the, the tremendous outpouring of expression um, this native son of Minnesota. And let's talk about uh, uh, the display. When can uh, folks see your new uh, your new display uh, featuring prints? Uh, the display is going to go up on April 18th uh, and will be up through the 23rd. It'll be on the first floor of the Minnesota History Center uh, adjacent to the information desk. Uh, the display will be free to the public. Thanks again to my guest, Adam Scher, Senior Curator at the Minnesota Historical Society. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. More Minnesota Matters after this. Last night, we put on an epic light show. Yeah, we did. The crowd loved us. We love the crowd. Wait, but there were only four people out there. Yeah, but did you see their four faces? All eight of their eyes lit up brighter than ours. <gasps> and we're fireflies. Yeah, we are. Hey, that one girl, she looked like she'd never seen glow in the dark like this before. And we invented glow in the dark. Yeah, we invented it. And we're going to be out here every night rocking out our light show at a forest near you. Woohoo! So come check us out. Check us out. And bring your kid all ages show. Oh, but uh, don't bring any of those glass jars because they make us kind of nervous. Yeah, and I'm super claustrophobic. Whether you're rocking their world or they're rocking yours, some memories never fade. Come alive with the forest. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a forest near you and discover other cool things to do when you go, like fishing, biking, or even camping. Visit discovertheforest.org. 
See you later. Yeah, see you soon. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The U of M football team is under the guidance of first-year head coach P.J. Flack and will be winding down the spring football practice period this weekend and into early next week. The team has its annual spring game on Saturday and its final practice of the spring session on Monday. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm spoke with two players who made the All-Big Ten team on last year's squad and are returning this year. He finds out how the transition has been going. Thanks, Scott. Gopher junior-to-be running back Rodney Smith led the Big Ten in touchdowns last season, scoring 17 times. Smith rushed for 1,158 yards and caught 23 passes for an additional 188 yards. He says a lot is different this spring. It's changed a lot. Coach Fleck and his staff is the how staff, they're the how coaches, and uh, I think you can see it. Um, everything's up-tempo. Uh, and that's that's what they stress. Uh, even if we mess up, uh, it's how you mess up. Uh, do it full speed, and they can fix it later in film. Uh, so that's the difference, uh, just how we go about practice, uh, and they challenge that, push that every day. You've had two really good years, but do you get a sense, too, that you're still trying to prove yourself now in front of your new position coach, your new head coach, your new offensive coordinator? Of course. Uh, anytime you get new coaches, you're always trying to uh, prove yourself. Everybody has to prove yourself because they have clean slates. Uh, first impressions are everything. Uh, so, yeah, I do feel like I, I, I'm trying to prove myself. Uh, and they've let that be known, too. Uh, we have a gopher talk, ADS. We learned it today. Uh, ain't dead squat. So, like I said, everybody has a clean slate. Uh, can't worry about what you did last year. What I did last year is just have to come out, change my best every week. You feel like you're playing pretty good football, though, as you usually do? I, I feel like I am. I'm learning the system. Um, now more of the focus for me is changing changing my body language and trying to influence others um, to, to be the best they can be. Uh, we only have five or six O-linemen, so keeping those guys up, it's, I know it's tough for them, but we don't make excuses. Uh, just Like I said, changing the how. <laughs> now, last thing for you, a lot of people wondering what that quarterback uh, situation looks like. Obviously, uh, with Mitch now, a four-year starter, not there. Um, what's your assessment of how all those guys are uh, battling it out? They are they are taking a lot in right now, and I applaud them. They're learning a lot. Uh, you can see the growth each and every day. Um, they fail sometimes, but failing is growth, and, and I enjoy seeing it. Um, they're getting better, making plays, making making good reads, uh, and I, I love seeing it. That's Gopher running back Rodney Smith from Jonesboro, Georgia. Fellow Gopher Emmett Carpenter of Green Bay was the Big Ten Kicker of the Year a year ago. He broke onto the scene last year by making 22 of his 24 field goal attempts, including two of more than 50 yards. He scored the second most points in school history for a single season. He accounted for 109 points. Carpenter hit the game-winning boot at home against Rutgers and scored a late field goal on the road for the lead in a game at Penn State. What is his assessment of the new changes this year? It's been a good spring, a lot of challenges and a lot of opportunities to grow, and that's exactly what we need in spring ball. A lot of opportunities just to push ourselves and get better as specialists and everyone else on the team. So our field goal operation, we're doing really well. Uh, I mean, we're continuing to get better and change our best every single day, and that's really all we can ask for. You, I have watched, uh, have been put in spots, uh, pressure situations that if on occasion you don't make it, your teammates have to run. I mean, that is something, I suppose, then when the fall comes and you have a, a kick in the fourth quarter, you don't feel that pressure as much, maybe. Yeah, one thing I'm definitely very thankful for is how much Coach Flack is challenging me as a specialist, not just not just with the running and the weightlifting and the physicality of it, but really pushing my mental strength, my mental toughness of 
you know, performing in these pressure situations because, you know, when you got a hundred other guys <laughs> relying on you to make that kick, otherwise we're running, you know, gassers, uh, there's, there's a little bit more at stake. So getting the practice at the pressure kicks this early on is definitely, definitely a, a great thing at this point. You're the returning Big Ten kicker of the year. Is the ball coming off the foot good? You feel good how, how, how you're kicking? I do feel good. There's definitely some things I want to work on and improve on for the season. And, you know, you're never going to be where you want to be. But uh, just taking the mindset of changing my best every single day and trying to grow in every aspect of my life, especially just as a person, as a kicker, and as a student. The, of course, a, a coaching change means there's a lot of things that change. It doesn't mean the last staff uh, was wrong and how they go about it or the new staff. And, but, but how much has changed? What, what's the difference? What's the main things that you can point to? Uh, there's many things that have changed and uh it's very as a student athlete on a team it's exciting and uh i can't reiterate enough how many opportunities there are to grow and i think that's probably the biggest change is day in and day out coach fleck challenges all of us as young men to grow in the classroom and grow on the field and grow in every aspect of our life so to me that's probably the biggest or biggest difference uh, just all the opportunities to really better ourselves every single day how important, last one for you, how important is it to, uh, to get a good crowd here Saturday for the spring game and, uh, you know, uh, put on a little bit of a show and, uh, and, and give them, uh, you know, a, a good uh, look at your right leg again? Yeah, I, I th I'm expecting a good crowd here at the spring game next week. Uh, I think a lot of people are going to be really excited to come in and see how we're practicing and check out just all the new stuff that's going on. That's Gopher standout Emmett Carpenter along with teammate Rodney Smith on Minnesota Matters. The summer workouts will begin when summer school starts later in the year, then fall camp arrives in August. The real season begins on Thursday, August 31st, when the Golden Gophers host Buffalo at TCF Bank Stadium. Scott? Thank you, Mike, and that is going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.